Welcome to the October 20th, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. In today's podcast, data show that lenalidomide promotes development of TP53-mutated therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Though more work is needed, these data suggest potential ways to mitigate risk of developing these. Also on the podcast, the first prospective study to evaluate abnormal uterine bleeding in women starting anticoagulation for venous thromboembolism. The incidence is high, and the impact on quality of life is substantial. Findings that should serve as a call to action for awareness, treatment, and prevention. Finally, an optimized tri-specific antibody that overcomes immune escape and enhances therapeutic efficacy in a patient-derived xenograft model of B-cell ALL. This strategy could help overcome the challenges of tumor resistance seen with bispecific antibody treatment. The first research article is entitled, Lenalidomide Promotes the Development of TP53-Mutated Therapy-Related Myeloid Neoplasms. And the first author is Adam S. Sperling of Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. Therapy-related myeloid neoplasms are a devastating consequence of cancer therapy. These are often treatment-resistant and associated with poor prognostic factors, such as a complex karyotype. The median overall survival of patients who develop therapy-related neoplasms ranges from 7 to 14 months, with a 5-year overall survival of just 10 to 20%. Most therapy-related myeloid neoplasms present as acute myeloid leukemia, or myelodysplastic syndromes, typically 3 to 7 months after treatment with chemotherapy and or radiotherapy. These neoplasms appear to arise from selective pressure brought on by treatment. Certain mutated hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells avoid apoptosis when treated with cytotoxic or DNA-damaging therapies, thus promoting the outgrowth of specific mutant clones. Treatment with topoisomerase II inhibitors is associated with the development of myeloid neoplasms that have rearrangements of the KMT2A gene at 11Q23 and alkylating agents are linked to abnormalities in chromosomes 5 and 7 observed in therapy-related MDS and AML. However, relatively little is known about how specific chemotherapy and radiation exposures shape the somatic mutation profile of these neoplasms. Recently, Sperling and colleagues sought to address this knowledge gap. The findings highlight the role of one agent, lenalidomide, in promoting TP53-mutated myeloid neoplasms through a retrospective review of clinical data, DNA sequencing, in vivo mouse studies, and cell line experiments. Their retrospective, single-center review encompassed 416 patients with solid tumors or non-myeloid hematologic malignancies who were treated at MD Anderson in Houston between November 2008 and February 2019, and who subsequently developed therapy-related MDS or AML. Treatment with thalidomide analogs, specifically lenalidomide, was linked to the development of TP53-mutated myeloid neoplasms in these patients. The median time from treatment to diagnosis of a myeloid neoplasm was 6.2 years, at least one gene mutation detected in 85% of patients. The most commonly mutated genes were involved in DNA repair, with TP53 involved in 37% of patients, followed by the protein phosphatase PPM1D in 19%. 
TP53 and PPM1D mutations were significantly more frequent in patients with therapy-related myeloid neoplasms as compared to a cohort of about 1,000 patients with AML or MDS and no prior exposure to chemo or radiotherapy. In a multivariate logistic regression analysis, TP53 mutations were significantly associated with prior exposures to thalidomide analogs, with an odds ratio of 3.14. Based on that finding, the investigators focused directly on lenalidomide, which accounted for 92% of thalidomide analog exposure in their cohort. Lenalidomide-induced degradation of protein kinase CK1-alpha leading to P53-dependent apoptosis in wild-type mouse hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, but not in TP53 mutant HSPCs. Furthermore, loss of P53 conferred resistance to lenalidomide in mouse HSPCs. However, pomalidomide, another thalidomide analog, did not lead to CK1-alpha degradation or P53-dependent cell death, suggesting that the selective advantage of TP53 mutant hematopoietic precursors is specific to lenalidomide. In addition, the competitive advantage appears to hinge on TP53 mutation, rather than other common mutations associated with clonal hematopoiesis. Using a multiplexed CRISPR-Cas9 system, the investigators showed that the advantage was exclusive to TRP53 mutant HSPCs and not in those with mutations in other genes associated with clonal hematopoiesis, such as DNMT3A, TET2, or ASXL1. In a commentary on this study, Sohini Chakraborty and Christopher Park of New York University Grossman School of Medicine in New York City said these findings implicate lenalidomide in the development of TP53 mutant myeloid neoplasms following chemo and or radiation therapy. They also say these findings raise the possibility that cancer treatment approaches could be altered to mitigate risk of developing neoplasms. However, significant questions remain to be answered. First, it may be true that lenalidomide promotes the outgrowth of TP53 mutant clones, but other thalidomide analogs, such as pomalidomide, may drive clonal selection involving other mutations relevant to clonal hematopoiesis. Also, it's not clear what a reasonable therapeutic modification would look like in current clinical practice. Lenalidomide is central to the treatment of multiple myeloma. Would lenalidomide be eliminated altogether or switched out in the maintenance phase to minimize exposure? Or could these patients potentially be screened for a specific mutational profile that would warrant an alternate treatment strategy? These questions need to be addressed in prospective studies looking at thalidomide analogs that are not associated with TP53-dependent mechanisms and by assessing TP53 mutant status during treatment. Overall, the study reinforces the idea that clonal selection and outgrowth are significantly affected by interplay between genotype and treatment, ultimately showing that compared to de novo AML and MDS, treatment-related neoplasms have a distinct genetic origin. The next research article is entitled Incidence and Impact of Anticoagulation-Associated Abnormal Menstrual Bleeding in Women After Venous Thromboembolism, or VTE. The first author is C.M.M. de Jong of Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands. Abnormal uterine bleeding, or AUB, which affects 10-30% to 30 of reproductive-aged women, is associated with negative psychosocial impacts and decreased quality of life. Available research indicates that AUB incidence is higher in women treated with oral anticoagulants as compared to women not receiving those medications. Yet exact incidence and prevalence estimates are elusive. 
In registries and randomized trials of anticoagulation therapy, definitions of relevant clinical bleeding have focused on new bleeding. However, these do not capture well the worsening of normal bleeding, such as with menstruation, and the significant psychological burden to the patient. De Jong and colleagues therefore conducted the first prospective study to quantify the burden of AUB in women starting anticoagulant therapy due to active VTE. Their observational study was conducted at 12 hospitals in eight European countries between August 2018 and September 2021. Its aim was to assess the incidence of AUB and resulting changes in quality of life among women between the ages of 18 to 50 and of childbearing potential who started oral anticoagulant therapy. Pulmonary embolism has been diagnosed in 46% of women, deep venous thrombosis in 34%, and both in 20%. Two of three women had provoked VTE, with oral contraceptive use or hormone treatment as the most common contributing factors. Women were enrolled shortly after a VTE diagnosis and were prospectively followed for six months or until discontinuation of anticoagulant treatment, whichever came first. As part of the study, patients completed the Pictorial Blood Loss Assessment Chart, or PBAC, a validated self-reporting tool. A score of 100 correlates with 80 milliliters of blood loss, which is a definition of heavy menstrual bleeding. The primary outcome was incidence of new-onset AUB according to several definitions. These included an elevated PBAC score of 100 or greater during one menstrual period, or a self-reported increase in menstrual volume regardless of regularity, frequency, or duration. Unfortunately, the study was terminated early due to the COVID-19 pandemic and a lack of resources, so only 98 women were recruited. The planned sample size was 210, so the primary endpoint had a wider 95% confidence interval than pre-specified. Nevertheless, results demonstrate both a substantial incidence of AUB and a substantial impact on quality of life among women starting anticoagulant therapy. Two-thirds of the women met at least one out of the three definitions of AUB during the follow-up period, with a 95% confidence interval of 57 to 75%. New-onset AUB in women who had no abnormal uterine bleeding before diagnosis was documented in 36 of 60 women, or 60%. Median PBAC scores during the first menstrual cycle on study were higher than scores women reported for their last period immediately prior to the study. After the first menstrual cycle on study, blood loss decreased and median PBAC scores were lower and steady for the second through sixth menstrual cycles. Quality of life decreased over time, but only among women with new-onset AUB. The investigators used the Menstrual Bleeding Questionnaire, or MBQ, to assess this. An increase in the MBQ score indicates a decrease in the quality of life, which declined significantly over time in study. This was reflected by a 5.1-point mean increase in MBQ from baseline to end of follow-up. MBQ score increased by 9.2 points for women with new-onset AUB versus women without AUB. Similarly, there was plus 9.3-point increase in MBQ score between women with new-onset AUB and women with pre-existing AUB. In a commentary, Barbara Conkle of the University of Washington in Seattle said these findings are striking and warrant a call to action to define the optimal anticoagulant choice in menstruating women who require anticoagulants as well as management of AUB if it develops. Unfortunately, the present study did not meet its enrollment goal, she said, and was unable to define risk of AUB by anticoagulant.
For now, Conkel concluded, when initiating anticoagulation in our clinical practices, we must educate our patients about the risk of heavier menstrual blood loss. Ask them about their menses before and after initiating anticoagulation, initiate treatment for heavy menstrual bleeding as needed, and monitor them for iron deficiency and other associated sequelae. Listeners, CME questions for this article are available on the Blood website at cme.bloodjournal.org. The final research article is entitled, A Novel CD19-CD22 CD3 Trispecific Antibody Enhances Therapeutic Efficacy and Overcomes Immune Escape Against BALL. The first author is Li Jun Zhao of Peking University Shenzhen Graduate School in Guangdong, China. In recent years, bispecific antibodies have emerged as a novel treatment option for patients with hematologic and solid malignancies. To date, there have been four bispecific antibodies approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Among these is blinitumumab, a bispecific CD19-directed CD3 T-cell engager with indications for treatment of certain patients with B-cell precursor ALL, or BALL. Blinitumumab has been revolutionary in the treatment of relapsed refractory BALL, with reported complete response rates of up to 69% in adults and 39% in pediatric patients. However, the durability of response is limited, with about half of patients relapsing within 12 to 18 months of treatment. Tumor heterogeneity and antigen loss as part of tumor escape and resistance mechanisms remain major challenges. One approach to overcoming immune escape is to simultaneously target more than one tumor-associated antigen in cancer cells. With advances in engineering, several tri-specific antibodies have been designed and investigated. One targets CD38 and CD28 on the tumor, along with CD3 on T-cells. This agent has been investigated in both multiple myeloma and Hodgkin lymphoma. Another tri-specific antibody has been evaluated in BALL. In contrast to blinitumumab, it targets not only CD19, but also CD20 on the tumor cell, along with CD3 on T-cells. However, there have been no in-depth investigations to determine how to design and determine the optimal structure of these tri-specific antibodies to target tumor cells, compared to the bispecific antibody configurations. Now in blood, Zhao and co-authors describe a novel, optimized CD19, CD22, and CD3 tri-specific antibody that exhibits impressive preclinical activity in overcoming immune escape and enhancing clearance of B-cell malignancies. In the research article, they describe the process through which they determined the optimal structure of this targeted antibody, in which a CD3-directed FAB fragment was fused to a CD19-directed single-chain variable fragment and a nanobody that targets CD22. The investigators say that the design of this antibody optimizes the geometry of the immunological synapses that form between the targeted tumor cells and T-cells. This tri-specific antibody was initially developed in the context of B-cell malignancies to address the limitations of blinitumumab and the need for a solution to preventing immune escape due to antigen loss. But how does this tri-specific antibody perform? The published results in the journal describe potent activity in vitro and in vivo against both CD19 and CD22 positive tumor cells. In a patient-derived xenograft model, they demonstrated improved inhibition of tumor growth in comparison to conventional bispecific antibody therapies. 
The tri-specific antibody showed similar binding and cytotoxicity as compared to bispecific antibodies on cell lines expressing a single target. And on cell lines expressing dual targets, the tri-specific antibody had superior retargeting and stimulatory activity. An in vitro comparison was conducted between in-house made blenitumumab and the CD19, CD22, and CD3 antibody. Evidence of immune evasion was found for blenitumumab, but not for the tri-specific antibody. In comparing the in vivo efficacy of the tri-specific antibody and blenitumumab in an immune evasion model, mice treated with blenitumumab succumbed rapidly to the disease, while treatment with the CD19, CD22, and CD3 antibody controlled tumor growth and enhanced the survival rate. In an accompanying commentary, Daphne Mueller of the Institute of Cell Biology and Immunology at the University of Stuttgart in Germany said these findings demonstrate the anti-tumor potential of this optimized tri-specific antibody in xenograft and immune escape models of B-cell malignancy. Mueller said the tri-specific antibody showed the capacity not only to replace bispecific antibodies, but also to add value by enhancing retargeting potency when both antigens are expressed on a tumor cell. The results are impressive, Mueller added, confirming for the first time the relevance of the tri-specific antibody concept for the constellation of CD19, CD22, and CD3. However, further studies will be needed to evaluate pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. More safety data is also needed, since the analysis of toxicity in this study was limited, and cytokine release syndrome remains a pressing concern for bispecific and tri-specific antibody approaches. However, the report by Zhao and co-authors represents an important contribution to our understanding of tri-specific antibodies and suggests the potential for a new therapeutic option for BALL in the future. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.